Sometimes things happen in our life that completely reorient and change everything about how we've lived up until that point. Sometimes it's an experience, sometimes it's new knowledge, sometimes it's in small things, sometimes it's in big things. Maybe you remember a time in your life where you, you loved and your favorite meal of all time was peanut butter and jelly or macaroni and cheese. But one time, that enjoying your favorite meal happened to coincide with contracting the flu. And it didn't stay down. And so what was your favorite meal up to that point Now, every time you smell it or even taste it, you can't get that experience out of your mind, that association, and you no longer enjoy or eat peanut butter and jelly or macaroni and cheese. For others, it may be something a little more significant. Growing up, uh, as Schubert's, my dad drove an El Camino gold. We sat three across the front. I was on a booster seat so I could see over the dashboard, know what was coming, enjoy all the scenery of Charlotte. We didn't wear seatbelts. It wasn't the law in Charlotte. Why would you wear a seatbelt? Sure, I mean, we'd heard of wrecks before, but it's not going to happen to us. We're on our way back from dinner one night. Somebody pulls in front of my dad. We're not going very fast. T-bones him. I hit the dash and the windshield. It took that experience, the bloody lip, the bruised forehead, the cracked windshield, to completely alter how Schubert's drive. You didn't have to convince us or remind us. Every time we got in any vehicle after that, we buckled our seatbelts immediately. Because there are some experiences you have that completely alter and change how you experience the world change your perspective and your thoughts, maybe on your life, or completely reorient your worldview and how you move forward. This morning, we are going to be in the book of Acts. This is a a, a book written by uh, a precise historian by the name of Luke, who he has written this book and one previous, writing to believers who questioned and longed for more confidence and certainty concerning the things that they had been taught about Jesus of Nazareth, His life, His teachings, and what happened after He was no longer on this earth. This morning, as We are going to be in chapter 2 of Acts, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, a man named Peter, is going to give a a speech, a sermon. And there's going to be something in this sermon that the people in Jerusalem hear that completely alters and, and, and transforms their life. It reorients everything about how they've been living up to that point, and it changes from this point on. So if you would, look with me in Acts chapter 2, 
We're going to start in verse 22 and go to the end of uh, verse 41. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 910. So if you would please follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God this morning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not left us to wander around blind and in the dark trying to figure out who we are, how this world came in existence, who you are and what you've done, 
and how we can ever be made right with You. We thank You that You have given us Your Word. And we pray this morning and ask that this living and active Word You would use to accomplish Your purposes in our hearts and in our lives. May we be changed as we encounter Christ in His Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the, the context of, of this crowd and who it is that Peter's talking to. Look back up in verse 5 and see who it is that Peter is addressing. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They're described as devout Jews. Those who have been seeking to live faithfully according to the way that the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, have been seeking and teaching them up to this point. They're here celebrating a festival, Pentecost, one of the high feasts of uh, the Jews. They've come to worship and celebrate and thank God for His provision in the harvest. And here, though, these devout Jews who have been seeking to faithfully follow their God, by the end of the chapter that we read, listen to what happens. So those who received His Word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. These Jews go and change the orientation of their life. They become followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who 40 days or so before this, had been rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, who had been declared by the religious leaders of their day to be a heretic, to be a blasphemer, to deserve death, because of how he had dishonored his God and broken the commandments of their Lord. Yet these devout Jews go and completely transform and change their lives and give their allegiance, their submission, their hope, and their trust, and they become followers of this one who was crucified and declared to be a blasphemer. How would devout men and women completely change and reorient their entire life, their entire worldview? What is it that they encountered? What knowledge, what experience did they have here in Peter's sermon? Let's look and see. What would... What would change them in such a way? Notice first what, what Peter says, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know. Uh, so so it, it seems that before Peter gives this speech, they know something about Jesus. He's a marvelous, a miraculous teacher. One who's done great things. Notice, they know about it. It happened in their midst. Peter is clear about that. These things happened in your midst, and you know about it. They are well aware of Jesus, the teacher, the miracle worker. But that, in and of itself, recognizing and affirming that Jesus was some great teacher that had gathered a following, or that might have had good instruction or things to impart to their lives, did not move these devout Jews to follow him. Jesus being a good teacher, a marvelous wonder worker, in and of itself was not enough for them to completely orient and change their lives. Continues to go on. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, in fact, emphasizes that multiple times. Again, down in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Seems that many of these men and women who were here were around when Jesus was on the cross. Sent there by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, crucified by the Romans. It's highly likely that many of these were the ones who said, We have no king but Caesar. This man is not our king. Crucify him. These devout. Jews who had already said, there is no way we will follow this man as our king, crucify him. Now, their lives are completely reoriented after this, that they would give themselves to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. But again, notice, their knowledge of Jesus' death was not enough in and of itself to convince them to completely reorient and change everything about their lives. You see, they knew of teachers who had come and gone. They knew of those who proclaimed and professed to be the Messiah, the Christ, who had come and gone and who had died. But that, in and of itself, was not enough. You see, Jesus, who is merely just a good teacher, Jesus, who, as a man who died on the cross, it's not enough. It's not special. Many teachers, many proclaimers to be deliverers came and went. But the Jews did not con- change their entire lives to be oriented around these dead teachers and dead messiahs. In fact, later, uh, the Apostle Paul, one of, another of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, would also say that if Jesus was one who taught well and remained dead, we are to be pitied if we follow him. 
Maybe you're here this morning. You would describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. You would acknowledge that he's a great teacher. You might even acknowledge that he, that he died a death, maybe as a model of sacrificial living and giving. But if that's as far as your acknowledgement and your understanding of who Jesus goes, that he's just a good teacher, a revolutionary, then that's not enough. That should not be enough for you to call yourself a follower of Him. Why would you? The original context of those who were there when He taught and when He died, for them, that was not enough. It was not sufficient. You cannot call yourself, and you should not call yourself, a follower of Christ if He was just merely a good teacher. And if he just died. But notice, there's more to what Peter says. The life, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus in and of themselves are not enough. Notice what it is that makes the difference. Back up in verse 24 after Peter has announced that this Jesus was the one whom they crucified and killed, in verse 24 he says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is proclaiming that this Great and marvelous teacher, this wonder worker, this one who was crucified. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. This sets him apart. There's something distinct, something unique about this Jesus. It wasn't possible for him to remain dead. He came back from the dead. Oh, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus came back to life? Well, notice, Peter points them. Here, he directs them to one of the Psalms that David wrote. And in it, David's writing about one who would die but not face and remain in death forever. Not just that, but who would not see corruption He's not talking just about some general resurrection at the end of time, but of one who would be in the grave, but whose body would not rot, who would not see any decay. Notice what Peter says in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. How do we know that what David was writing about this one who would come back from the dead, how do we know it wasn't about David? Because we know how to confirm whether somebody's still dead or not. We go to their tomb. And guess what, people of Jerusalem? We know where David's tomb is. He's been dead for quite a long time, but we know where it is. And guess what? He died. He's buried. 
and he's still in there. Something's different about Jesus, though. Jesus' tomb is empty. He died. He was buried. But the tomb of Jesus is open. There is no one in it. The empty tomb, is that enough? Well, in and of itself, it's not. Because people could have broken in there and stole it. They could have hidden Jesus' body. But notice, Peter goes even further. It's not just that there was an empty tomb, but there are witnesses. Look in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's talking about himself and the other apostles, the followers of Jesus who were there. They have seen the risen Christ. This resurrection that Peter's talking about is not just one of in their minds or of a spiritual resurrection. Remember, what he's talking about is a body that didn't see decay or corruption. He's talking about resurrection, historical, physical, material. The body of Jesus went into the tomb, dead, and the body of Jesus came out of the tomb alive. And we have seen him. Uh, This account of Jesus' life and his work before his ascension and after his ascension that Luke has written. It was written around the uh, late 50s to early, or to late 60s A.D. You know, uh, 30 to 40 years or so after Jesus' death. But Luke communicates to the, the guy Theophilus that he's writing to, that he sought out to get eyewitness testimony to confirm so that Theophilus would know for certain about the things that he's being taught, that this Jesus of Nazareth died and was raised. Later, Paul is going to write to, uh, later in the Bible, but earlier from Luke's account, is uh, writing to a group of, uh, of Christians in Corinth. And he writes to them about the eyewitness accounts and testimony. That Jesus rose from the dead that the apostles saw him, and that more than 500 people saw the risen Jesus. We were in Apex, North Carolina a couple of weeks ago. We're riding down the street, and all of a sudden, this man and this woman are just kind of staring at us in our car, kind of waving like this. We stop at the stop sign and roll down the window, and they look at Lindsay, and they're like, We could have sworn you are our daughter. You look exactly like her. But we know there's no way it could have been her because she's out of town with her kids. But when we saw you, we had to look twice because you just got to take our word for it. You are the spitting image of her. But it wasn't. How did they know that? Well, they verified. Something as insignificant of that, of thinking you saw your daughter on the street of Apex, North Carolina. Not that big a deal. 
but here. To think you've seen the risen Christ, you're just going to go off of, am I seeing his doppelganger on the streets of Jerusalem? Or am I going to give my life? Because if I begin to follow him as my Savior and my King, the, the apostles after this, it would cost them their life. You're going to want to make sure it was him. And they did. It wasn't just a chance sighting here or there. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They doubted that he was alive. They thought they were seeing his ghost. But he said, look, I'm going to show you that I'm alive. Touch me. I'm going to eat something so that you see. Do ghosts eat? We know from Harry Potter, they can't. It falls right through them. But here, these eyewitness accounts tell us that Jesus rose from the dead in space and time and history. Luke is writing us this account 30 or 40 years later. Paul writes a letter, similar time period. But do you remember where Peter is speaking? In Jerusalem. Where was Jesus crucified? 40 days before this in Jerusalem. You want to verify and see is the tomb empty? Do you want to find out are there people here who really saw him alive? Guess what? Jerusalem wasn't a mega metropolis. You could go and find out and see and talk to the people who were there, who saw him dead and who saw him alive. And here, Peter is testifying to them, we have seen and interacted and touched the living Christ. He is no longer dead, but he has risen and he is alive. But Peter goes on and he interprets what this resurrection means. Notice what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says there's significance. Eternal, life-changing significance to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And it is that it demonstrates and shows and proves that He is both Lord and Christ. Lord. Here in this context, Peter has already been talking about uh, mentioning Lord in multiple situations and circumstances. He's already, uh, uh, just before this, uh, appeals and quotes from the prophet Joel. And there, from, in speaking of this prophecy from Joel, he says, and it shall come to pass, in verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. In the Old Testament, that Lord there is designating the covenant name of the God of Israel. Everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. Who is the one in whom Peter later will say you need to be baptized into the name of? Whose name do you call out for salvation? It's Jesus. Peter is saying here, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he is being demonstrated and shown and proven to be the covenant God of Israel. In fact, that's what Jesus' teachings were. He proclaimed that he was God in the flesh, only did the things God could do, his miracles, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus here, his Life, His death, His resurrection confirms that He is God. In fact, Peter says that very clearly just in verse 17. In these last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Who does Peter say here has poured out His Spirit? Look uh, there in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead proves that He was who He said He was. God. The Creator of all things. But also it says that He's Christ. Christ. We've been together uh, weeks, months previous to this. We've been going through the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. And God gave a promise to a man in First and Second Samuel named David that there would be one who would always rule and reign on his throne forever. Not just over Israel, but over all things. An eternal, forever king. The Christ. The anointed one the promised one of the Old Testament. Peter is also saying, in light of Jesus' resurrection, He is this King over all things. A human King on the throne. Jesus, the resurrected One, is God and man. If He had not risen from the dead, He would have been guilty of blasphemy. If He had not risen from the dead, He would either have been a liar or the biggest fool there has ever been. But His resurrection, Peter says, confirms that He is Lord and Christ. So what? What should the response be? Well, notice what these people do. In light of receiving and hearing this news, this knowledge, this information, this is their question. Look in verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is the question. Because if Jesus is who He said He was, and He has risen from the dead, and He is both God and King, then we've messed up. We killed Him. We rejected Him the Creator of all things, we've rebelled against Him. Our King. 
We put him aside. What hope is there for us? Is there anything we can do? Because if Jesus of Nazareth is God and King and we've rebelled against Him, what we deserve is His wrath and rejection and judgment. Is there any hope? Listen to what Peter says. Repent. In verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Your rebellion, your sin, your shame, it can be forgiven. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, submitting to Him as your God and as your King and relying on what He has done for you. Through trusting in the perfect life, the death, And the resurrection of Jesus, your rebellion and your sin can be forgiven. You who have rejected Him as your God and as your King can be brought in to His kingdom. There is grace and there is hope and there is mercy for you because the Jesus you killed rose from the dead. That might have been true for them. They were there. They were the ones who killed Him. They were the ones who yelled out, crucify Him. What about us? We don't need this, do we? might be some of you here who are thinking that. I'm not as bad as these guys. I have not done anything near this. I've been trying to live my life in a good way. There might be others of you here who are thinking... Man, I really hope this is true. I hope this promise isn't just for them because I know about my own heart. I know what I've done. And I want to know, is there any hope for me? Notice how Peter exposes both the need and the extent of the promise. Look in verse 38. I mean 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Who is in need of this promise? They are. Their children are. Notice it doesn't designate or specify an age. All of their children need this promise. And those who are far off. Those who aren't there. Who weren't there. All of them are in need of the forgiveness of sins that only comes through Jesus. The need is universal. But also notice the extent of the promise. The promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off. This is the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus of Nazareth, over 2,000 years ago, in space, in time, in history, God took on flesh, becoming a man. He lived perfectly in this world. He died on the cross, was put into the tomb, 
And on the third day, he came out. He lives. He is the resurrected one. Jesus is God and King. For those of us who are looking and hoping and resting and trusting in Jesus, who we are following Him as our God and as our King, not just as a good teacher, but as the sovereign Creator and King over all things, the promise is for you. Your sins have been forgiven. Jesus has risen that you can have new life. For those of you who are still questioning and wondering, I would encourage you to look into and investigate these eyewitness accounts of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you want to look at that, I would love to sit down and for us to investigate the historical accounts of Jesus' life further. There's other folks in our church who would love to do that. This is the most important question you can ask and give all your time to investigating it. Because if Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, then you must grapple with this question. Have I rejected the Creator and ruler of all things. But here is offer of grace and mercy. Forgiveness is found to all of those who call out to Him in repentance and faith. This morning we celebrate the physical, bodily, material resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the dead Therefore, all of His promises are true. May we rest and hope in Him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that You are not dead, but You are risen. And that You rule and You reign now on behalf of Your people. We pray this morning that You would turn our hearts to hope and rest and seek You as our Lord and as our Christ. In Your name we pray. Amen.